Father, we ask that you would use the word that we're about to go into now, Second Chronicles. Whether you would speak to our hearts, not just with head knowledge, but Lord, honestly, that our hearts will have met with you this morning, we will have heard your voice, and we'd be motivated toward action as a result. So Father, we ask for your blessing on our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Chronicles chapter 3. Uh, if you haven't done so, would you please turn there to Second Chronicles chapter 3. Now, when we were last together, as we looked at Second Chronicles chapter 3, we, we realized that in chapter 2, Solomon was purposing, or he purposed within his heart, I'm going to build a temple. My father told me to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to build a temple here, and that would go on to become his greatest accomplishment. All the things that Solomon did, this is what the writer of Second Chronicles, some 400 years after Solomon uh, lived on the earth, this is what he chooses to write about for seven or eight chapters. And in chapter 2, verse 1, it says that he purposed to build a temple. And that's great. It's good, it's excellent to have intentions, but if we don't follow through, as we concluded our study last week, really, what's the purpose of, of purposing, of determining, of having good intentions? We've got to follow through. And in chapter 3, verse 1, it, as we read last week, he began. Solomon began to build the temple. How important it is to take those very first steps to move beyond good intentions and to actually be busy about what it is that God has laid upon your heart. We're going to see in chapter 5, verse 1, not today, but another day, that Solomon finishes the building. So he moves from the place of purpose to the place of actually starting, and then he, he brings that to completion. Well, in our passage today, we're going to be looking at uh, the structure of this building. So you have a relatively simple building, the temple. We'll look at this, the design of this building, and then next week as we come together, the Lord leading, uh, we'll look at the instruments and the furniture of the particular building. But let's read verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, And then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He began to build in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. And these are Solomon's measurements for the building of the house of God. The length, in cubits, of the old standard, was 60 cubits, and the breadth, 20 cubits. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and its height was 120 cubits. He overlaid it on the inside with pure gold. The nave he lined with cypress, and he covered it with fine gold, and he made palms and chains upon it. He adorned the house with settings of precious stones. The gold was gold from Parvim, and so he lined the house with gold, its beams, its thresholds, its walls, and its doors, and he carved cherubim upon the walls. Now, when we say that Solomon built the temple, that doesn't literally mean he was there with you know, anvil and, and hammer, that uh, he was sort of the architect behind the, the whole thing. Uh, other guys would actually be doing the labor, the building of this particular temple. And he would have lots of decisions to make as to what kind of wood they were going to use, where they were going to get it from, what kind of stones, what they were going to cover with gold, what it was going to look like. Lots of decisions that he would have to make. But one decision that he would not have to make is where the temple would be built. And the reason why he wouldn't have to make that particular decision because the temple's location was already chosen for him. And so you can think about all the places in Israel that the temple, it would make sense to build or it would be a good site uh, to build. And probably somewhere on a high place so that as people are kind of coming into town, they can look up at that temple and see it and kind of progress toward it. Uh, central location, something like a Jerusalem would make sense where lots of people are going to gather, all sorts of things like that. All the things that could go around or, or uh, influence where it was going to be built. But these weren't going to be 
uh, factors determining where Solomon was going to build it. Solomon would build the temple where he was told to build the temple. And we saw back in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, for those of you that were here, in 1 Chronicles 22, when David was the king and David was alive, it says that David determined here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here shall be the altar of burnt offering for Israel. And so we also know from 1 Chronicles chapter 15 that David had already moved the key piece of the tabernacle, the temple, the key piece of it, the key furniture of it was the Ark of the Covenant. And that was already there in Jerusalem. They put it there, they put it under a tent, and it's in that very location, that very spot, that this temple is going to, be, to go on and be built. So if you look at 2 Chronicles chapter 3, 1, which we read earlier, it tells us that Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem upon Mount Moriah. Now, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, then you know how wrong Ravi was in the little story that he read there. I noticed that it took a bunch of you two, three stories in to realize this guy's way off uh, here. And some of you were trying to, did I mishear him? Uh, so if you're familiar with your Old Testament, then you know that Mount Moriah is a place that is mentioned a number of different times in the scripture. The first time that Mount Moriah is, is mentioned, and, and I don't know if it, it was mentioned in passing in other places, but the first time in the scripture where it's kind of the heart of the story is found in Genesis chapter 22. And it's in Genesis chapter 22 where God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. That's Mount Moriah, one of the mountains in the land of Moriah. He's told to bring his son to a place that God would later show him. And there he would be asked to offer up his son Isaac. And if you're familiar with this story, you know that he doesn't actually offer up his son in that particular place because God stops him. He says, I was testing you. I wanted to see the condition of your heart. Interesting, about a thousand years later and about five, six books later in the Old Testament, we come upon this same mountain Again, and it is here in First Chronicles chapter 1 and in Second uh, Samuel, I guess it is as well, that David comes upon this particular mountain. It's about a thousand years after Abraham, and there David presents an offering to God upon, upon this place that is called Mount Moriah. And again, as we read in Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. A threshing floor in that day is essentially a large flat rock. And there's a particular rock there on the top of Mount Moriah today. You can go, you can look at it. Uh, and it's roughly about 10 feet by 10 feet. And not, not a perfect square necessarily, but it's this large flat rock that is there. And it is there that the person that was threshing out the grain, they would beat the rock with the grain or whatever, and they would throw it up and the wind would blow. And that which was, it was good, that which was valuable in the grain, it would sink down and then they would do what they had to do with that. They would eat it or pass it on and so on. That large flat rock, that threshing floor, is what David was told, that's the place that you are to purchase from this fellow by the name of Ornon, the Jebusite. So in First Chronicles 21, we read, Now the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up, and that he should raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. Now remember Jebus, or the Jebusite people from Jebus, that's uh, the pre-name for um, Jerusalem. And so there in Jerusalem, David is told to go and purchase this threshing floor. 
First Chronicles 21 continues, and it says, And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor, that I may build an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at full price, that the plague may be averted from the people. Now the plague that we're speaking of, by way of reminder, is you may recall that David determined he was going to take a census of the people of Israel. Warnings came to him, don't do that, it's a bad idea, David. But he did it anyway. And a judgment came upon the nation. Many people died, hundreds of thousands, well, tens of thousands into the 100,000 of people had died at that time of the nation of Israel. And as David is there, he's praying, he's crying out for God's mercy. It says that he has sort of this revelation, if you will, of this angel. And that the angel is coming, he's going to wield the sword upon the city of Jerusalem. And he goes and he cries out and he says, God, please, it's my fault. It's my fault that all this is occurring here. Don't judge these people. And there God instructs him, you know what? Bring me an offering. And upon this stone that I mentioned to you, this threshing floor of this fellow by the name of Ornan, there offer that particular offering. That was Mount Moriah. And so from the days of Abraham, a thousand years before David, uh, where he offers up his son, or he's prepared to offer up his son, to the days of David, where he offers up this animal to appease God here, if you will, the selection of Mount Moriah. It's not some random choice. It's not something that Solomon kind of searched everywhere to determine where am I going to put this thing. But it was designed by God as the place that the temple would be built. The word Moriah, it means, and I think this is significant, it means foreseen by Jehovah. Or you could translate it in other ways, chosen by Jehovah. Both of those ideas essentially convey the same idea. Foreseen by Jehovah, chosen by Jehovah. So when God spoke to Abraham, and he said to him, I want you to get up and I want you to take your son, I want you to go to a mountain that I'm going to show you, this wasn't God sort of stalling for a little more time. You know, I'll know it when I get there. I'll see it when I get there, this sort of thing. God knew what he was doing. He was bringing him to a particular place, a place that he had had in mind because it was a place that was foreseen by the Lord. When the Spirit of God spoke through this prophet Gad, to tell David to go and instruct him to purchase uh, the threshing floor there upon the mount, the Spirit of God moved in such a way because the place had been previously chosen by God. And it wasn't chosen because a thousand years earlier on that same mount, uh, Abraham offered up Isaac, but it was chosen because it went back a thousand years even further, or maybe 2,000 or 3,000. It went back before the very foundation of the earth was laid. You see, it was upon the peaks of Mount Moriah. Now, Mount Moriah is not like a smooth hill that goes all the way up to the top kind of thing. You know, it's it's a mountain, and it's got a little peak here and another one there and another one over there. It was upon one of those peaks, not the same one necessarily that Abraham offered up Isaac, not the same one certainly that the temple was built, but it was upon one of the peaks of Mount Moriah that another offering would be made. And the peak of that particular, or the name of that particular peak was what we call Golgotha, or what we call Calvary. You see where Christ was crucified? The offering of what John the Baptist said is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? That was on the same mount. That's some coincidence, isn't it? It's not a coincidence at all. You see, it was foreseen by Jehovah. Of all the places on the earth, Mount Moriah was the exact place that Jesus would be crucified upon a cross. So Mount Moriah was the place chosen by Jehovah to build this temple. It would be the place where hundreds of thousands of sacrifices would be offered because the Father foresaw 
that the only sacrifice that once and for all could take away the penalty or pay the penalty for our sin would also be made there. And so this is the place that was selected by Solomon, not because Abraham was there, not because David necessarily was there, but because the Father in heaven knew that this would be the place the Son of God would voluntarily give his life. Mount Moriah would be the place that the judgment of God for man's sin would be dealt with once and for all. Interesting, when you consider history, the central events of history. What year are we in now? 2013? Somebody told me 2012, last service. 2013, here we are. You go back, and then you begin counting the other way. The central event of history is the coming and the death and resurrection of Christ. It all revolves around him. The Father foresaw this, and he foresaw where it was going to take place. And so there, in this symbolic gesture, I guess you might say, he says, let's build a temple here. Well, there'll be sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice, all looking forward to the sacrifice. Now, if you look again, or not again, but if you look to verse 2, as we continue to move on, it says, And Solomon began to build in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. Now, the parallel passage, and as I said, uh, for First Chronicles, parallel passages can be found in Second Samuel. For Second Chronicles, many of the parallel passages can be found in First Kings. If you look at the, the parallel passage of First Kings, chapter 6, what you read there, as it says, uh, in the 11th year, in the month of Bull, which is the 8th month, the house was finished. Remember, he started in the 4th year of Solomon's reign. In the 11th year, it was finished, according to all of its specifications, and Solomon was 7 years in building it. As we saw last week, 153,000 men uh, were devoted to the task of building this temple, and it took him 7 years to build this particular temple. It was certainly quite a structure indeed. Now moving on to verse 3, notice it says, And these are the, the Solomon's measurements for building the house of God. The length in cubits of the old standard was 60, and the breadth 20 cubits. Now, don't confuse the old cubit with the new cubit. I'm sure many of you were thinking, which cubit are we talking about from history here? Remember that the children of Israel, uh, when this book is written, they were just returning from Babylonian captivity. The Babylonians used a system of measurement that they called a cubit. However, it meant something different from what the Jews used uh, in the Old Testament. The Jews, Jewish cubit was essentially, it wasn't exact, but it was essentially the, the um, length from your big finger, the tip of your big finger to an elbow of a typical man. Uh, and so we estimate that it is about roughly 18 inches. That's the rough measurement that we are using to describe uh, the sizes of this particular building. And it says here that it is 60 cubits in length and it is 20 cubits wide. So you do the math and that means it is roughly a 90 by 30 foot rectangle. Now I don't know if you can picture what a 90 by 30 foot rectangle is and so I want to help you a little bit here. First off, I'm standing here. I'd be standing on the side of the temple. So the temple is a rectangle in which that would be the door and that would be, so to speak, where the pulpit is. We'll, We'll just explain it that particular way. So from this wall to this wall, and I was in here this morning with my tape measure, quite honestly, from this wall to this wall is about 30 feet. Now 20 cubits is equal to about 30 feet as we said. So this is about how wide the temple was. You'd come in through that door and you would walk this particular way. From that wall to that wall in this room is about 55 feet. Are you writing this down? You get this in your notes here, okay? That's about 55 feet. 
So the temple went to about 90 feet, so almost halfway, uh, another size of this particular room. So you, you think of this room essentially being doubled, and that was the size of the temple. And this is not that big of a room. Even if we doubled it, it would not be that big of a room. And you think, what? That's too small. How are they going to get all those people in there? Well, remember, the temple was not a place where the children of Israel gathered in. It was a place they came to, they gathered around it, but it was only the priests that would go into the temple, and it was only the high priest that would go all the way into the Holy of Holies. The children of Israel, they congregated in the outer courtyard. When they would come for the feast or they would come for their individual family's worship, they stayed outside of the building uh, when they entered in, uh, or when they, when they came to, I should say, the temple. It wasn't a building for the people to assemble in. Now, the temple that we're going to read about here was essentially made up of three sections. Outside, there was an outer courtyard. And then as you came inside, so that's one section, when you came inside, the building, this rectangle, 90 by 30, was divided into two rooms. There was a larger room, which the passage here says was roughly 40 by 20 in cubits. And then there was a smaller room, a little bit further down the line, uh, progressing to, that was 20 by 20 cubits. Let's look at verse 4 here. Verse 4 says, The vestibule... In the front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long. It was equal to the width of the house, and its height was 120 cubits, and he overlaid it on the inside with pure gold. Now, the vestibule was sort of an outdoor porch that led into the temple. And when you went in, you went into, in verse 5, what it describes as as the nave. Some versions call it the house. And so verse 5 through 7 says, Now the nave he lined with cypress, a type of wood, And he covered it with fine gold, and he made palms, and he made chains upon it. He adorned the house with settings of precious stones. The gold was gold from Parvim, and so he lined the house with gold, its beams, its thresholds, its walls, and its doors, and he carved cherubim upon the walls. So this nave, or this house, in other places is called the holy place. Other places in the scripture, this is called the holy place. And this holy place, this nave, it's the larger of the two interior rooms. And remember, the whole building was 60 cubits by 20 cubits. I'm just going to use cubits here for our purposes. First Kings says, of that 60 cubits by 20 cubits, it says this room is 20 by 40. And First Kings 6.17 tells us that. The next room that you move through, so what's the name of the first room? The nave or the holy place. Very good. Okay, so you have the holy place. The next room is called the most holy place, okay? Uh, Or some versions will call it the holy of holies. And what were the dimensions? Let's see if you're with me. What were the dimensions of the holy place? 20 by 40. Very good. Excellent. Give them a star. All right, it was 20 by 40. This particular room is 20 by 20, okay? So it's a a square. The other one still takes the shape of a rectangle. 1 Kings 6.20 tells us not only was it 20 by 20, but it also went up 20. So you have a perfect cube that you're gathering in that is called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. Now, what was this temple constructed with? We learned that it was uh, constructed on the outside, so there's layers to the building, if you will. The outside of the building was made of stone, stone that was quarried there on the hills of Jerusalem, surrounding Jerusalem, off of the Temple Mount site. That's significant. We'll talk about it another time. Then on the inside, those stone walls were lined with cypress wood, And then that cypress wood was covered with fine gold. And then that gold was adorned either with precious stones or with engravings. We read about engravings of palm trees, engravings of sort of a looping chain. We read of engravings of little angels, cherubim, 
I call them little, I don't know if they're little necessarily, but of angels, uh, and so on. So they're building completely covered on the inside, to your eye, if you were to go in there, of gold. Okay? Now moving on, look at verse 8. Verse 8 reads of the specifications of the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary, and there it says, And Solomon made the most holy place, its length corresponding to the breadth of the house. It was 20 cubits, and its breadth was 20 cubits. And he overlaid it with 600 talents of fine gold. The weight of the gold for the nails was 50 shekels, and he overlaid the upper chambers with gold. 600 talents of fine gold. Now, a talent weighed about 75 pounds. And verse 8 tells us that there were 600 talents of gold used to overlay the walls just in the Holy of Holies. So you do the math, and 75 pounds times 600 talents, it brings you to 45,000 pounds of gold used to overlay the walls in this particular, and the ceiling in this particular room. Now, to put that in perspective, today if you wanted to buy gold, you know, they, I don't know if, if your radio stations, they advertise gold and you can buy gold. Every radio station I seem to listen to, you could buy gold. And I'm wondering, is that you, God? And then I realize I don't have the money to buy all that gold anyway. An ounce of gold today cost about $1,700 to buy one ounce of gold. Now, this particular building here, there, well, in, in all of our math here, there's uh, 16 ounces to every pound. This particular building had 45,000 pounds of gold. So I got my little phone calculator out uh, during the week, and I typed it in. And what I've came to discover is that my calculator doesn't count that high, and at least the, my phone calculator. But somebody this morning, they came up to me, and they did the math, and it comes out to one, uh, roughly in value $1.2 billion worth of gold in this particular room. And I've, I've jotted a note down to myself so I wouldn't forget that that's a lot of gold uh, in this particular room here. So all that is visible in the temple is gold. So you walk in and eventually recall, remember, you may not know this, so I'll inform you, but eventually the Shekinah glory of God will come and will fill this particular room. And you can imagine the glory of God coming in that bright shining light that would reflect all of that gold. It must have been uh, a sight indeed. Gold in the scripture oftentimes paints for us a picture of the glory of God or of the glory of deity or of the Lord. And I believe this the, overlaying this entire temple, the purpose behind it is, is to uh, communicate this idea that the glory of the Lord would fill this particular place. Now, within the Holy of Holies, this smaller room, as you progress your way through the temple, the 20 by 20 room, it tells us in chapter 3, verse 10, in the most holy place, that Solomon made two cherubim of wood and that he overlaid them with gold. Now, cherubim is a word that we're not as familiar with in our culture. We are familiar with the word cherub. Many of us, we think of our kids, we call them cherubs, usually sarcastically. And we, say, we use that phrase to describe them there. That's the singular form, cherub, is the singular form here of cherubim, or cherubim. And so that there's multiple cherubs, it says here, and it gives us specifically the number, there's two of them that are built in this holy place. Now, we also know within this holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And so we have a couple of pictures here. I did it again, I'm sorry. We have a couple of pictures here, and on the left over here, this particular box structure, that's the Ark of the Covenant. It's essentially the only piece of furniture that is found there in the Holy of Holies. And upon the top of this Ark of the Covenant, 
you have the two cherubim essentially kind of standing like this um, with their wings kind of touching in the middle. In between, in that sort of that little black star-looking structure kind of in between there that their wings make, that would be where the mercy seat was. And there is where the high priest would come and he would offer up the atonement blood on the day of atonement and he would pour it out into this mercy seat, which was really like a bowl, that would pour out over the sides of the Ark of the Covenant. So there's cherubim that are adorning the top of the Ark of the Covenant. But that's not the cherubim that we're speaking of in this passage. The ones that we're speaking of is a little better idea here on the side. So this structure here in the middle, this is the Ark of the Covenant. And you can see these two things that the passage will tell us they go 15 feet high. And their wings are spread out from side to side. That is what you come in. When the high priest would go in there and he would enter in through the curtain and he would enter in, he would see these two huge angels that are sort of looking down over top of him. Certainly, it must have been a very, very imposing sight. According to verses 11 and 12, it says, Now the wings of the cherubim together extended 20 cubits. One wing of the one of five cubits touched the wall of the house, and then its other wing touched the wing of the other angel. I'll read it here as it says it. And its other wing of five cubits touched the wing of the other cherub. And of this cherub, one wing of five cubits touched the wall of the house. And the other wing, also of five cubits, was joined to the wing of the first cherub. The wings of these cherubim extended 20 cubits. So that's the the entire width of this building. Remember, it's 20 by 20. And there these gold-covered angels stand at the end of this particular building. Must have been, as I said, an imposing sight. But I think it's important to point out here is that these cherubim, as imposing as they must have been to the priest that was sort of entering in or was entering in to this particular room, they were not there to block access to the place of God's presence. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was the place of God's special presence. Not that God can be contained in a building or at a box or anything like that, but he chose to use that place or bless that place as the place of his special presence. And these angels aren't there sort of blocking access to God's presence. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, perhaps you do. In Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve, they had just sinned, they had made that decision to doubt God and his word and to doubt God and his goodness and to believe Satan and the lies that he uh, was peddling to them. And they took of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they were immediately aware of their sin. And they hid themselves, the scripture says. And they were separate from one another. They began to accuse one another. And they were separate in their relationship with God, we read in Genesis chapter 3. And in verse 24, it goes on to say that God drove out Adam and Eve. It says he drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed the cherubim, same words, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There, God did not make these gold, uh, 15-foot-high cherubim. These were real angels that were put in place, and it says that they had this flaming sword. I don't know, cherubim is plural, so maybe it was two angels, maybe it was four angels, who knows how many necessarily were put in place there. But these angels were put in place to prevent access back into this Garden of Eden. Why? Because God was punishing them necessarily? I think it was done as an act of mercy. Because God knew that if these two individuals, this Adam and Eve, in this separated sinful state, would go into this Garden of Eden and they would find that tree of life, 
that they would partake of it and they would forever be in that separated place. And that was not God's desire at all. So these particular angels there with their flaming swords block access to that tree of life. Ultimately, we know that this tree of life that God did grant you and I access to is the person of Christ, the tree being the cross. And he certainly has granted us access to that place. But here in the temple, God was providing a place for the atoning sacrifice to be offered. And he did not want access to that place to be blocked. So the angels aren't in front of the ark, they're behind the ark. It's as if, you know, arms are open wide, come in. Your design is to come here. Now we know that the, the offering that was in the temple could never take away man's sin, but it would be a place that would allow man to look forward in faith to a sacrifice that one day would take away man's sin. The cherubim. You know, it's interesting that there in the garden where they would lay the body of Christ, just temporarily actually, the passage seems to indicate, as they took him down from the cross, there was a garden nearby and there was a tomb in which no body had ever been laid. And there they laid the body of the Lord Jesus. And a day or so later on that Sunday, the, it, the passage says that the women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and some other women, that they go to prepare the body, sort of give him a proper burial. And when they get there, the stone had been rolled away and there's these angels. You remember how the story goes on a little further? There are these cherubim that are seated there. Interesting again. Again and again how you see these reference to the cherubim. Each time it seems that we're reading about this association with the sacrifice. And God here has accepted the sacrifice of Christ. These angels, they welcome. They're not designed to hinder our access to God. Now, if you return to our passage as we are moving along here. I don't want to say wrapping up, not yet. Hang in there. But as you return to our passage in verse 14, the next item that is in the temple there we read about is the veil and so as it says and solomon made the veil of blue and purple and crimson fabrics and fine linen and he worked the cherubim upon it so sewn into the fabric of this veil are these cherubim these angels now exodus chapter 26 we read the purpose of the veil or curtain you could use that term and it says that the purpose of it was to separate the holy place that room of 40 by 20 from the most holy place that smaller room in the back of the temple. Now, if I were to ask you, what are some of the objects of the temple? Many of us, just from general knowledge, we would say, well, I know there was an offering, and you've been talking about this offering or burnt offering, uh, this altar of burnt offering. And so you would remember that. Many of you we talked a little bit about, and you'd probably recall uh, the, the menorah, the candelabras that were found in there. Some of you might even recall from studying of the Old Testament, wasn't there a table in there where they put bread upon it? Because I remember some story about David eating the bread from that particular place. And there are certain items that you may remember, and then other items probably none of us could say unless we were specifically reading the passage. One item that I suspect most of us in this room would say is there's a veil that hangs. And the reason why we're much more familiar with the veil than we are some of those other pieces of furniture is because the veil is spoken of in the New Testament. You may recall in Mark chapter 15 that after Jesus had been brutalized and beaten and mocked and they took him that next morning and they brought him to a place where they crucified him alongside two thieves there's if you read the passage kind of carefully and there's a lot of uh, kind of things that are interspersed there but if you read during his time there upon the cross that there are seven statements of christ in which he kind of i think he's directing our thinking and i think you can kind of trace through his statements and look back to psalm chapter 22 
uh, and just an interesting study in there. But we come to that very last statement where Jesus, it says, he takes that deep breath and he says, it is finished. It's paid in full. And the scripture goes on, it says that he gave up the ghost at that time. He bowed his head and that he died. It goes on then to say in Mark 15, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now remember, the temple is only another hundred, a couple hundred yards away from where Jesus is being crucified. And there, some of the priests are in that holy place, not, certainly not going to the most holy place, but they're in that holy place doing what it is the priest did in that particular area there. And then all of a sudden, the, temp, uh, the veil, I should say, is torn in two. You know, there, there's something that is called the Jewish Talmud. The Talmud is essentially written commentaries from rabbis two, 3,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. And they have become so significant in the Jewish faith that in the way that you and I might say, well, Paul says in Romans, and if I say that, you know, or if you say that, I believe, oh, if Paul said it, then I believe it. Well, many people went, whatever these Jewish rabbis said in the Talmud, all right, that's what it is then. If the, if the Talmud says it, I believe it. Well, that may or may not be the case, but what the Talmud declares is that the veil of the temple, it was roughly the width of a man's hand. That's how thick it was. I'm a man, uh, and this is my hand. And so uh, you take a ruler out and you measure that, that's roughly five, six, seven inches or something there, depending on the size of the particular man. That's how thick, not, not wide, it, it went to 20 cubits wide. That's how thick this particular temple was. Now some of you may recall back in the olden days when they used to publish phone books, you guys remember phone books? You know what they look like? Well, my wife and I, we hunted up a phone book in our house today, and we found something uh, about the, the size of a phone book. And a phone book is about two or three inches thick. So this particular temp, um, veil, I should say, the width of a man's hand is five or six. It's roughly two, maybe three phone books thick. Can you imagine how thick this particular veil was that hung? And I love the detail of Mark's Gospel because he says that this veil, this six-inch thick curtain that separated these two rooms, it says that it was torn from top to bottom. Now, that may mean nothing, or it may be something of great significance, and I think it is something of great significance. Because, you know, if the tail was torn from bottom to top, well, then m- maybe a priest came in, he took a knife, and he kind of got it started, and then, you know, they just kept pulling, and next thing you know, the thing is torn. But it's torn some 20 feet or 30 feet up in the air all the way down to the bottom. And I think there's a lot of significance, symbolism, meaning to that, that it is God from heaven tearing that veil open to provide access into the room of his presence. It's a miracle that was performed by the mighty hands of God. It's a miracle which in its action states, one, that there was a lamb, there was an offering that had been slain, it was made, it was accepted, and access, access to the presence of God has been granted. The veil was torn so that you and I might enter into the presence of God. In the book of Revelation, there are a series of letters that were written to the churches. Now, there's seven of them. There were seven specific churches in Asia Minor that needed to receive these letters. There were things going on in those churches and they had to have a letter that was written to them that sort of said, hey, you know what, clean up your act, get this together, get that together, be encouraged, and and so on and so forth. 
there in those letters, in two of the letters, there's a group of people that are called the Nicolaitans that are spoken of. In one case it says the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, in another place it says the work of the Nicolaitans. And the word Nicolaitan is a word which, if you take the, the Greek form of uh, the formation of this particular word, it comes from two Greek words. Uh, the first portion is where we get the word Nico, and the second portion is the Laetins there. Laetins, you can see it, it's the laity. It's sort of the average, if you will. Each of us were in sort of this laity, and then you have the priest, then you have the bishop, then you have the popes. They're the professionals at this particular task. The rest of us are the laity. This word Nico, it's where we get the word Nike. And it's a word which, like our sneakers, it's a word which means victory, or a word which means conquering. And there are some that have suggested that the meaning, we don't know exactly, but that the meaning of the Nicolaitans and, and Jesus here in Revelation 2.6 says he hates the works of the Nicolaitans or the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. The meaning of the word could be the conquering of the laity or victory over the laity. And Jesus said he hates it. God is very much bothered by any religious movement that uses his name that sets up barriers that prevent access to him. And so you can't come directly to me because you're just a common folk. So you need to go to the priest. You need to go to the pastor. You need to go to the bishop. You need to go to the pope. You need to go to some special person in order to get access to God. The scripture is very clear that the veil of the temple has been torn in two. You and I do not need another to go into God's presence other than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The veil was torn and access has been granted. Now, you sit there and you say... No problem. You know, honestly, and I, I hate to bash or anything like that, but honestly, the, the conquering of the na- laity is something you might see in the Catholic Church or something like that. Many of us has, have come from a Catholic background as I have. And what I was taught was I had to go to confession. I have to tell the priest what I'm thinking, such and such, and he will explain to me what prayers I need to, almost as if God said to him, tell him to do this, and he comes and he tells me, and then I go do that, and now I'm good to go. But I don't deal with that anymore. I know that I can go directly to God the Father through the person of Jesus Christ. I don't struggle with that, but I do continue to struggle with establishing veils that separate me from the presence of God, and maybe you do as well. And so I think it's an an important point at this juncture to remind ourselves not to set up a veil that will separate you from God. And I think we do that sometimes when we establish certain rules for ourselves, or stipulations, or we thrust guilt trips upon ourselves. And so I don't know if you've ever said this to yourself or thought this, but perhaps you put off reading your Bible or praying because you had a particularly bad day earlier, the day before or earlier in the day. And so you tell yourself, I can't go to God and pray. All that stuff I did today, those thoughts that I had today, that thing I said today to that person, I can't go into God's presence. You've established a veil. Now don't get me wrong, the scripture is very clear that our sin separates us from God. We know that the scripture teaches that. But the whole point of the fact that the veil has been torn is to remind us, is to teach us, is to encourage us that our sin does not need to keep us separated from God. It may separate you in that instance, but when you realize and you repent of that sin and you return to God, there is nothing that is separating you from the Father. The the veil, I should say, has been torn. So important that we do not allow a veil to be set up that separates us from the Father. When the body of Christ was torn, when it was beaten and it was brutalized, and eventually it died, the veil was torn. 
The scripture says this, and I think this verse is remarkable. The scripture says, God made him who had no sin so that in him we might become. God, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, come on. That's just not fair. That's just not right. It doesn't make any sense. But it's the truth that the scripture teaches that the sinless one became sin for us. And so do not allow a veil to be set up by yourself or by another that separates you from the presence of God. Go directly in. Again, the scripture in the New Testament a little bit later says, if you confess your sin, you're a believer. You've already come to that place where you've come to the foot of the cross, you look to the cross, you, you kind of, uh, you, you've brought the, the total burnt offering that we talked about there upon the altar of burnt offering, and you've given your whole life to Christ. You said, that's it, I need you. I need a Savior. You've come to that place in your life, and then you, know, you leave there, and down the road you find yourself, you fall, you sin, you struggle. And there's an area of your life that's not pleasing to God. What the Scripture says for us, and in those instances, if we confess our sin, that God is faithful and that He is just, that He'll forgive us our sin and cleanse us from that unrighteousness. Who is He faithful and just to? Is God faithful and just to you? Certainly not. You deserve nothing. He's faithful and just to His Son. He's faithful and just to the sinless one that became sin and died upon a cross. Not for himself, but for you. And so, if you had a, a particular string of bad days, and you find yourself failing a lot, and you come to God, and God were to say to you, you know what? I'm getting a little tired of this routine. You keep coming back here with the same things. Get your act together. And when you do, then come back and see me. If he were to do that, he would not be faithful and just to the work of the sinless one that had given his life. So he's not faithful and just to you. He's faithful and just to his son. The veil has been torn. If you have sin in your life, deal with it. Confess it as such. Forsake it, as Jesus told uh, the woman caught in adultery, and then move on with him. Move on in presence, the presence of God. Now, it goes on in verse 15. We've got to get moving here. There's that big show tonight on the Bible, on History Channel. I hope you watch it, so I'll get you home by 8. Uh, and so it says here, final three verses, beginning in verse 15. It says, now in front of the house he made two pillars, 35 cubits high with a capital of five cubits. That's sort of like a cap on the top of the pillar. He made chains like a necklace. He put them on the tops of the pillars. He made 100 pomegranates and he put them on the chains. Is it engraved, remember, in the gold. He set up the pillars in front of the temple, one on the south, the other on the north. That on the south he called Jachin and that on the north, Boaz. Now, the passage indicates that he sets up these two pillars. It tells us the dimensions of them. They're 35 cubits high, that's about 50 feet or so, 52 and a half feet tall. These real tall, super high pillars. On top of them sit a cap, which is another 5 or 6 feet, 7 or 8 feet uh, on top of that. So it's very, you're coming in and there's huge pillars. Now remember, the building faces to the east. So when it says these pillars are on the south and on the north, basically what they're doing is they're framing the doorway, the entryway, into this particular temple. They're not actually holding anything up. They're just these columns that freely stand there to frame the entryway into the temple. And it's interesting to note that the pillars are named. We don't normally name uh, building structures, you know, or pillars or something like that. But these are named, and their names are given. The one on the south is Yaquin or Jachin, and the one on the north is called Boaz. And it's interesting, we could read past that relatively quickly, but it's interesting that the word Jachin or Yaquin, it means that he will establish. 
And the word Boaz, it means to be strengthened. You see, the, the temple of the Lord was a place where a person could go to be strengthened and established in God. I think that's, that's exciting. I think everything. We could, we could spend all day looking at these things and digging into these things. Everything is meaning something, I'm sure, in this temple. But the temple was a place where you would go to be strengthened and established in who you are in God. And for us in the New Testament, who we are in the person and work of Christ. Strengthened and established. So you would come to the temple... And the first thing you would encounter, you pass through these pillars, the first thing you encounter is this altar of burnt offering. And I told you there that whatever was put on that altar of burnt offering was completely consumed. And it was a recognition of the total depravity of the worshiper. All of it needs to be consumed. Nothing of it can last. And so in the same way in the New Testament, when we come to Christ, we come and we declare, you are my Lord. I lay myself completely down for your will to be done in my life. I am a complete and total sinner. Are we allowed to talk that way anymore? Are people going to feel upset? You know, you didn't make me feel too good today. No, Jesus will break us down. And as long as there's a part of your life that say, you know what, I do have a lot of things that are messed up, but I'm okay. I'm just going to, you know, pull myself up, bootstrap thing, and I'm going to really kind of plug away here. As long as there's that remnant of, I'm all right, I'll clean it up in the long run then you are not worthy to receive salvation, the Scripture says. That sounds, even coming, even saying it, it sounds harsh. Even saying it, it sounds offensive. I'm a little bit offended by that. But Jesus would say it in another way, later or earlier on or a different place in the Gospels, he would say, it's not the healthy that need a physician, but it's the sick. I don't like to go to doctors. It's, I feel it's a waste of my time. There's plenty of other things I can do. So I better be dying if I'm going to finally make it there, I have to come to the place where it's like, you know what, I just can't go on anymore. I've got to get myself to a doctor. And that's the idea of our salvation. As long as we're recognizing I'm pretty good, I can kind of wrap th- clean things up a little bit, and I'll get myself back on track here, and you're not worthy of salvation. But when you finally break, and you say, God, I need you. I just need you. Would you declare me to be righteous in a way that I never could? Would you take this sinful one and clean me up and look at me and see me as the spotless, righteous one of your son? Would you do that work? Well, that begins. So God breaks us down, but then he begins to strengthen us. And then as we continue to make our way through and we move through the temple and we pass all these things and all that they symbolize, we finally come to the torn veil and we enter into the presence of God. And God begins to teach the hopeless one that they can be strengthened in the knowledge of God. This truth that God so loved the world that he gave his son. I know that verse, Greg. Well, think about it again. That God loved us so much that he himself would become a man and be brutalized and mocked by his very creation to no gain to himself. But he did that for you and he did that for me. You know, that establishes me in the love of God. And I suspect it establishes you as well. The knowledge that God would do that for us because He loves us. We are established, as Paul would say to Timothy, by the grace of Christ. We don't need to go to a building to be strengthened and established. We go to God through His Word as a result of our personal relationship made possible through the work of Christ. We come to Him by grace and we allow Him to establish us through His Word. And it is upon that that we strengthen and that we stand.
Jachin, and Boaz. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that at the front of that temple there is uh, a curtain that has been rent in two. Lord, access into the presence of God has been won by the perfect spotless Lamb of God. Father, we thank You that we can be forgiven of our sin and that we can be washed and we can be cleansed and that nothing needs separate us. Lord, this is just... It's beyond really... It's beyond our ability really to fathom. Why would You do that? Even though we don't fully understand, we do embrace it as truth. And so, Father, we ask for those that are with us that have yet to come to the place of being completely broken down to declare, I need a Savior. Lord, we ask that you would do that work within, in them. We know that it is by your Holy Spirit's work within our hearts that any of us have been able to believe. And so we pray that you would do that miracle this morning amongst those that need to believe. And Lord, for the rest of us that have already initiated relationship with you, we've come to the cross, we've recognized our sin, and we've accepted the free gift of salvation in the person of Christ. Lord, it is our prayer that we would continue to move forward into the deep places of the temple, discovering in new and fresh ways the riches of Christ, enjoying the presence of God in a way that we've never enjoyed in our walk. Lord, we thank you. And when your body was beat and brutalized, it gave us access. Father, we love you. And we pray this prayer in the name of your Son, Jesus.